All right, we're beginning our journey through the Lord's Prayer this morning. We'll begin in verses 5 and 6 in Matthew chapter 6. Yeah, the kids can be dismissed now. I forgot that one very critical detail. Um, <clears throat> so if you would turn your Bibles, I, I hope that you have either gotten a hard copy of the devotional or you have downloaded it uh, to use as part of your family worship time. This, this is a, the devotional is a fantastic way for you to connect to everything that we're going to be doing each Sunday for worship. So you'll know all of the passages that we'll be using. You'll know some of the questions that we'll be asking. And this can help uh, just deepen and, and enrich your Sunday by Sunday experience. Because here's the truth. If you expect for us to be able to deepen and enrich your experience based on our perfection, may it be proved straight away, we just can't do it. And we, we can't lift that heavy. And so we are sinners in need of grace. We, we are also um, straining to understand these things. And so we want you to be prepared um, so that you can enjoy and drink deep of what God has for us each and every Sunday. And uniquely, as we'll go very slowly through the Lord's Prayer, basically just doing a couple of verses or a single verse each time, um, it'll, it'll be a great opportunity for us to grow in something that is a means of grace. Remember, prayer is a means of grace that God gives to his people to comfort them, right? Um, to, to grant them access to the throne of grace, to receive what it is that they need in a time of trouble, to receive both mercy and grace. Remember, prayer is the way in which we are able to interact directly with God. Now, apart from Christ, can you interact directly with God? Can you? No. So for you to even be able to pray is a means of grace because it is purchased for you by Christ's blood. It is in his brokenness, in his sacrifice, that we are given a means by which we can communicate directly with the Lord our God. And that should be something that we should desire to know more about. You heard me say in the previous weeks that when the disciples had the opportunity to ask to be taught something, of all the things they could have asked Jesus to teach them how to do, turn stones into bread, that'd be a pretty good thing, right? Turn water into wine. For some people, that'd be a pretty good thing. Um, to be able to make scorpions do backflips, right? You can charge 50 cents a pop for that. You can, that's a cottage industry. Um, there's all kind of things that they could have asked Jesus to teach them how to do. And the thing that they wanted to know was, Lord, after what we have seen, as you have interacted with God the Father, what we want to know how to do is we want to know how to pray. Teach us how to talk to the Father in the way that you do. And so this morning and in the coming weeks, we're going to seek to hopefully put some more meat on that question. So let me open with a question. Um, is prayer a negotiable aspect of the Christian life? I, I knew there were a couple of Christians in here. Yeah, no, it's not. However, let's be honest. Let's really be honest. For how many of you is it basically functionally a negotiable aspect of the Christian life? I mean, it is, isn't it? If you ask somebody anything about how their, 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 their Christian life is going, what do they always say they wish they could do better? What's the one thing that always comes up? The ability to talk to dad, the ability to communicate with the father, prayer. We're always saying, my prayer life just stinks. And, and yet we wonder why 
Other aspects of our lives, other aspects of the faith are weak and anemic. See, if you can't even, I can't even, I'm with you in this, by the way, I struggle too. If we can't take joy in this means of grace, if we can't access and use this means of grace, we will continue to languish in immaturity. That's a strong statement, isn't it? But I, I think it's true. Because when Christ, in his darkest moment, as we looked at when we were doing the Passion of the Christ from the Gospel of Luke, in his darkest moment, where did he go in Gethsemane? Did he go to the disciples and say, hey guys, I need some advice. There's this cup of filth that I'm about to have to drink to the dregs. You cats know what I'm talking about, right? So what, what do you think I should do? Right? He, did it. he did that, right? Peter, James, John, he, that was his counsel. No, where did he go? He went to the God the Father. Remember the term that he used. One of the few times that it gets used by Christ himself. He says, Abba, Abba, if this cup may pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. In his darkest hour, when he knew that he was going to depart from his disciples and he needed to impart to them the most important words he could think of. In John, what does he do? John 17. The high priestly prayer. He turns to the Lord himself and he says, Lord, would your word keep them? Because the wolves are coming and nothing can protect them but you. So again and again, what we see even from Christ himself is a robust and a rich prayer life, which was not just something he accessed when things were going wrong. Notice he already had a robust prayer life. What did he frequently do? They would frequently go looking for him, and where would he be? Shooting dice? Right, where was he? Casting lots because he knew the outcome, it was easy money. No, where was he? He was in prayer. They were like, Lord, you, we got things to do, man. We got, we got places to go. We got people to see. And he was getting alone with the Father, taking time to commune with his Father in this unique means of grace. Now, let me ask you this. If he who is perfect needed to do that, hmm, how much more you and I who are utterly, impossibly brokenly imperfect. How much more do we need this means of grace in order to be able to live and move and survive and thrive and flourish in a fallen world? It's got to be something that we stop year after year saying the same thing about. It is something that we must grow in to our joy and for our good so that we can be equipped for the work of the ministry so that we could grow up into the fullness of the body of Christ. We cannot look like him if we do not do what he did. We are not being transformed in his image if we deny this very critical means of grace. Listen to what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says in question 98. It says, the question is, what is prayer? And listen to how it's answered. Prayer is an offering up 
of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will. Let me just pause right there for just a second. Now, if I'm honest, and I don't, this don't, no show of hands, this is not a time of group confession necessarily, but I do not offer up my desires to the Lord so that they would be shaped into his will. What, what, what do most of us do straight away when we do manage to scrape up enough effort to pray? Hey, Lord, I, I got some things I need done, bro. I, I, need, you to, I need you to engage some things for me. I, I got some things I need you to work on because it's rough down here. And, uh, and if you would take care of that, I, I promise I may even... I, I might even start reading the Bible. I, I don't know. It could get crazy. Just, just hold your seatbelt. I'm being somewhat facetious, but isn't that kind of the heart and soul oftentimes of our prayer life is that it's more about what we want him to do and trying to bend him to our will instead of having our wills shaped, transformed, grown, and matured into his will. So I do appreciate that the Westminster Shorter Catechism straight away, first and foremost, puts it on blast that it is your will that must be shaped, not God's. It goes on to say, in the name of Christ, which that's pretty important, right? Because if we want our wills to be shaped, there's a lot of things in name that they could be shaped into. A lot of ideologies, a lot of isms, a lot of parties, a lot of things that could shape our will. But it is in the name of Christ alone that we are to be shaped so that we can traverse all of these things for the sake of flourishing. How quickly does the conversation on Charleston descend into insanity when we are not shaped by God's will in the name of Christ? We start talking about things that are just, it just blows my mind how quickly we are spun off into anything but grief. What happened in Charleston was not just something that should hurt the African American community. It should grieve us to our core. Those were our brothers and sisters. Woe be unto us if we make it into an issue for our own. Well, but... See, the, the gun control thing. Well, well, but wait a minute now. This, this, this fellow over here, he's a fraud. He shouldn't be saying that. I don't, that is just, we should put our hands over our mouths and say, like Job said, I have spoken ignorantly, Lord, forgive me. We should grieve. We should seek to do anything that we can for the cause of Christ not to be destroyed. And so the Westminster says in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. What's interesting to me there is where is the word petition in that definition of prayer? It's absent. It's missing. It's not there in essence. Would that our prayers would be shaped into this kind of a vessel to receive the blessing and the means of grace that the Lord intends when we go before him. So here Jesus is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the single greatest treatise on the Christian life. 
if you notice, spends probably more verses on prayer than most other things that he addresses. And he addresses it fairly straight away or kind of in the middle. And it's, it's critical um, that we understand that this is a discussion not just about prayer, but about the greater Christian life. And so we want to make sure that we give our full attention to each verse so that we might would grow. Amen. So if you would turn to verse 5 and let's, uh, let's hear and read that together. Listen to what God's word says. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So straight away, Jesus is saying, not if you pray, notice, as if it were a negotiable aspect of the Christian life. What does he say? When you pray, as if it were some sort of foregone conclusion that a Christian would somehow, some reason, want to talk to the God that they have been restored to by the person and work of Christ. Right? Remember the whole story. The whole point of the story is that we were separated from God by what? Sin. Sin so dark and awful that it would keep us from all that is good and it would seek to destroy us in toto, body and soul. And that separated us from a holy God who cannot tolerate sins who come before him. And yet, instead of him, and it would have been perfectly just, by the way, exacting his judgment on all sin and starting over had he wanted to, he chose in the counsel of his own will to redeem. And he sent his son, Christ, to be the mediator and the redeemer so that we could be restored to him, so that we could be made new again, so that sin would not have the final say on us or the things of the Lord. And so God in great mercy sends Christ so that we could come boldly before the throne of grace, so that we could call the Lord our God our Father, so that we could be declared the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Not just subjects, not just uh, uh, parishioners, not just some other category, but sons and daughters. Who would not want to talk to someone of such high esteem who has declared this such? Now, if that's the point of the story, then prayer becomes a very critical aspect of that being true and our recognition that that is in fact true, right? I mean, for us to receive all that we've received from God and have no desire to speak with him, no desire to be led or shaped or guided by him, something is wrong, isn't it? This is not just about behavior, This is about what we understand about the entirety of what Christ has done for us. For us not to pray is a passive or very active denial of the person and work of Christ. Land's kind of heavy when you say it like that, doesn't it? Trust me, I didn't want to say that either because it lands on me as well. So Christ is not presuming that you might choose to pray, saying when you pray. And he starts straight away with an example of how not to pray. And so he gives us this example. He uses a term 
that gets thrown around in our culture quite a bit, the term hypocrite. Now, whoever's not a hypocrite, you can tune out for a second. The rest of you, all 100%, need to stay clued in. Because the, the, the deal is this, a hypocrite is someone who, it's essentially a, a bit of an acting term, it had a, a, a theatrical background, it is someone who pretends to be something that they ultimately are not. It is a way of taking on a persona for the sake of those who are watching, when in reality that is not at all what you are. It also presupposes that there is an audience, right? What good does it do uh, to be a hypocrite in private? You're just Robert De Niro from the taxi driver standing in the mirror going slowly crazy. You talking to me? See, if you're going to be a hypocrite, you must have an audience, and the audience must be able to benefit you in some way, shape, or form. Or you must at least believe that they can benefit you in some way, shape, or form, right? And so these folks that he is describing are folks who are presuming to be pious. Is everybody comfortable with that term? That means they're saying we are more religious or we are holier than we actually are. We are pretending to be something that we are not. And so as part of this act, this public display, their main audience is other people. And so the two main places that he points out that they would display this is the synagogue, which is where the Jews would gather to worship. So it would not be uncommon for people to be invited to come up and pray in public, right? I mean, this was part of their life. To be invited was a a bit of an esteem to have someone say, hey, we would like for you to pray this morning. We still kind of have that today, don't we? If I were to come to you, unless you're just scared to death of public prayer and ask you, hey, I really would love for you to pray, there would be at least a moment where you'd be like, oh, this feels pretty good. Cameron noticed me. Uh, He's probably heard me pray. It's eloquent. It's going to be beautiful. Shekinah glory is going to be all over the place. It's going to be nuts. So so it was not something that was uncommon for them to be asked to do this, but it was what they would do when they took that opportunity. It was the motivation of their heart. They wanted to make sure that they would get invited again. They wanted to make sure that they would be seen and known. The attention was to be upon them. The other place they would do it is at the street corner. This is where um, usually it was, would be a, where two roads would come together so you'd get maximal impact. Because, you know, mo- back in those days, they didn't have cars. I don't know if you knew this or not, but they didn't. And so the travel was not very fast. And so if you stood on the street corner where two streets came together and prayed really loud because it was that time of day to pray, they would think, man, that guy's really pious. He can't even wait to get to the synagogue. He's got to get loose out in public. Look at his devotion. And so these men would make sure that everyone saw them. But the critical pieces of the puzzle are this. One, the audience was man. Two, the focus was on the person praying. Now, why is that important? Is is the focus of the Christian life how right you can or I can be? Isn't that it? Isn't that how we prove our maturity? We can quote something in Latin or Greek or Hebrew. Doesn't that prove my piety? No, it doesn't. And any time, we should always be concerned when any religious activity at all draws attention to the person. This is the great danger of what I am doing even right now. And I wish I knew how to untangle it in Toto. I wish we could have more of an open discussion type situation in some respects. 
It's, it's a lot of the reason that you've heard me, all, me talk about deconstructing the cult of personality. Because if you focus on me and what I can do, if I hear you say, Cameron, Cameron's preaching does X, Y, or Z for me, that grieves my heart. Because what you should say is the Holy Spirit, through God's word clearly displayed, has moved me, has done this, has done that. Do not use my name at all. It is worthless. This is also one of the reasons that I, in the great tradition of many preachers, do not stand at the back door and shake your hand. Because I'm not the show this morning. I don't want to hear, good job, good job, 550 foot home run, all that kind of stuff. It's flattery. It's, it's not going to do you or me any good. Let the praise be unto the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean I, I don't want to talk to you, but I want to talk to you about right things, not flattery, not those kinds of things. Does that make sense? But you have to check your own heart as well as you do the various things you do, particularly when it comes to prayer. What's your motivation? Whenever you get a chance to pray, are you more concerned with what someone else thinks about what you're saying? Are you concerned with trying to use a bunch of right words that you can't even fumblingly talk to your Abba Father who has saved you? For some of you, it looks like this. It's passive aggressive. There are some of you who say, don't ever ask me to pray public. I don't, I don't want to pray in public because people are going to think bad of me. Who cares what anyone thinks of you? The Lord, your God, has declared you his son or his daughter. Talk to him. And fear not what man thinks of you or how right they think you are in the orchestration of your words. I've said this illustration before, and it's not mine, but one time D.L. Moody had a fellow that was praying at some event he was at, and this guy was being overly flowery with his prayer. He was, oh, most gracious heavenly father who has formed the stars and the Pleiades and the Aeneid and blah, blah, blah. So he went on for about five minutes and D.L. Moody came up and tapped him on the shoulder and he said, just ask him for something and be quiet. I don't agree with the total theology of the asking for something part, but I get the point. His point was salient. Sometimes we're just running off at the mouth. We'll get to that next week. But remember, remember, it's not about drawing attention to you. In fact, it is to deflect attention away from you. The motivation of our prayer should be, what does God think about this? Listen to what D.A. Carson says. In, uh, he's a New Testament scholar in the Expositor's Bible Commentary on Matthew. He says, the public versus the private antithesis is a good test of one's motives. The person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he is less interested in God's approval than in human praise. Not piety, but a reputation for piety is his concern. Remember, what's the antithesis to faith that we learn from the book of Habakkuk? Pride, arrogance, not doubt, mind you. Not struggle. But pride and arrogance, thinking that you are the show, that you are the point, that you should be looked to and looked upon. That's the same is true here. This is exactly what Christ is saying is that your pride should not be on display. You are not to be on display. You are not the point. So, is pride and self-focus consistent with the biblical purpose of prayer? I know that seems like a foregone conclusion to answer, right? But it's something that we must answer. If you are prideful in your religious activities, prayer being one, 
That is utterly antithetical to all that Christ did for you. And you must seek to have it rooted out from you in the power of the Spirit. This is not a show. Turn with me to verse 6, and let's see what Christ says we are to do. He says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So what we see here is that Christ has said you should never pray in public, right? Now what he just said? Not at all, because what does Christ do sometimes? He prays in public and he has other people do it too. So wait a minute now, I mean, are we supposed to build a little bitty room in our homes to make sure that we have a, a prayer closet? Is that what he's saying we must do, that no one should hear us talk to our father? It's not what he's saying. He's actually using this as an illustration, just as he did earlier in the Sermon on the Mount when he was saying, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Tell me how you do that. And flip it the other way. I almost knocked my pack off, which I'm good to do at least once a week. So here what he's saying is, this is not something that he is commanding from a, this is a direct commandment. You must always pray in secret. What he's giving us is a mindset and a motivation. Jesus is calling us to humbly recognize that God alone is our audience when we pray. No matter what circumstance we're in, no matter where we are, when we step before the throne of grace, we must recognize it is he alone who matters what is thought of what we are saying. Again, that kind of goes back to our definition from question 98, doesn't it? Prayers and offering up of our desires to whom? God, for things agreeable to whose will? His will, no one else's. So Christ is teaching us that when we pray, which is not a foregone conclusion, it is a foregone conclusion that as Christians we would pray, that when we pray, that our main audience should be the Lord our God as if we were in that little storeroom that would be in a Palestinian house that would be the only room that would have a lock on the door and no windows. It, every time we pray, public or private, it should be as if we were in that prayer closet alone. Now, that's not also to say that there are not times that we do need to get alone because Christ did, right? We do. There are times that we need to remove ourselves from the total distractions that come when we pray in open situations. But this is not a carte blanche commandment saying that. That is part of it. But even then, the motivation must be that God would be pleased with what we would say, that our will would be bent to his and not the other way around. Um, this also means that we are to be shaped by God, how God thinks of us, and not how man thinks of us. Now, why is this important? Tell me this. How fickle is man's opinion? I mean, take, take any public figure, and I don't even need to pick one, but watch how the pendulum swings to and fro, how fickle people are. How they love you one day, they hate you the next. They want you for their cause today, and if you don't, they hate you the next. 
you don't sign up for what they care about and you don't bend to their will, guess what? The flattery goes away. And that's true in every single solitary sector in which people are lauded. Is it not? And so this, that's why Christ did say they've received their reward. And the reward is fickle and ever-changing, shifting sand, something that cannot satisfy them. But instead, you should pray for the reward that the Lord will grant you in secret. And what reward is that? Eternal life. He has already granted and declared us sons and daughters. What more could he give us? And not only that as bonus, we have received the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us and to direct us. That's what I love about the psalm that we read this morning when it says, I have answered you in the secret place of thunder. How many of you have been in that secret place where it felt like all hell was breaking loose? And the Lord in a still small voice spoke low into that. See, because he is our father, we are granted access to all of the spiritual and heavenly things. Once he has declared us his children, that never changes. For those of you who are parents, you know part of what I'm talking about. Because no matter what your children seem to do, there's a way in which you love them that is unchanging. And that is a grace from the Lord our God. His love is even greater than that. His love is even less changing than that. It is even more eternal than that. And this is what we receive. Why in the world would we not go to receive such a gift as that on a regular basis? Who in here could say, if he's told me once, that's fine. I'll see him in eternity. It's, we're good. We'll catch up then. It's eternity, man. We got all, and we, I don't want to be talking all the time now because we're not going to have anything to talk about in eternity, right? We run out of stuff to say. I mean, I mean think about it. Even the angels are kind of stuck on holy, holy, holy. Robert Murray McShane says this, and this is quoted many places. I don't know where it was originally quoted, so forgive me for those of you who would take me to task for not having the original quotation. He says, a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. Let me read that again. A man or woman is only what they are on their knees before the Lord their God and nothing more. Think about it from this perspective. If you are a child of the Most High God and he has declared his love for you for eternity, how much more could you be? So as you come before God as a son or daughter, you are all that you will ever need to be. And that recognition is more on our side as we grow in maturity and understanding what that is. And that will happen only through the means of grace, prayer being one of them. So, let me ask you, who should be our audience regardless of where we pray? God should. And how does the private side of the devotional life inform and affect the public side? See, who you are in private actually determines who you are in public. You know as well as I do, we're not fooling anybody. We're not. I just spent an entire weekend with middle schoolers. Even they can sniff it out. They know what's genuine. They know what's real. 
oftentimes. So it is important that we recognize that who we are before God is in Christ the greatest and highest thing we will ever be, which allows us to be utterly free on the public side, utterly free to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Let me ask you, those of you who torturously are part of the Facebook world, are you encouraged by what you see by and large? Are there nothing but ambassadors of reconciliation floating in the internet sphere? Or have many of you left because your blood pressure just couldn't take it anymore? See, what if, and that's just the Christians posting, by the way. What if, what if we took so seriously who we are before God? What if we took seriously the call to be ambassadors of reconciliation in all things? What if we realized there was no cause but Christ? What if we realized that we have been declared into the family of God, a broader, more diverse family than we could ever create by our own hands? What if what we did publicly was reflective of what we did privately? Well, I got news for you, it actually is. It actually is reflective, whether you like it or not. But what if it would reflect a greater understanding of what Christ is calling us to in prayer? What if that secret place of prayer was actually what informed us as we dealt with each other in public? Man, I'm not saying this world would be perfect because it wouldn't be. But what I am saying is it would look a whole lot better. And so this is in part what Christ is calling us to, that prayer as it says in question 98, would actually shape and bend our will, our person to that of the Lord our God. And that it would be in Christ's name, meaning that it would be in his image. Amen? Would that that would be true of us. Listen to what R.C. Sproul in his book, The Prayer of the Lord says. He says, God is not interested in our public displays of piety. He's not. Does God need something pious from us? Some public display? No, he doesn't. Remember, he could make even the rocks and the trees cry out if that was necessary. And sometimes he does. He goes on to say, he is not interested in religion in terms of outward show. He's interested in godliness, which means that we would, godliness just means that we would look more like him. Our spiritual lives are means to the ends of godliness and prayer is one of the key aspects of our spirituality. So Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6, 5, and 6 these things. He says, he teaches us that prayer is an expected part of the Christian life. Please wrestle with whether or not you functionally believe this. It doesn't matter what you believe cognitively. What matters is, does it actually come out in practice at some point? Be honest with where you are. Don't beat yourself up. There's grace enough for you. You still have breath in your lungs. You can grow. But is prayer an expected aspect of your Christian life? And then secondly, that we should not pray like the hypocrites whose main audience and concern is man who draw attention to themselves. Now, you may say, well, I, you need to wrestle with the question. 
right? We need to ask the Spirit, show me, Lord, where I am more concerned in all that I do for you with what man thinks instead of what you think. Don't presuppose that you, you don't make this mistake. Trust me, I have preached sermons and prayers, and I am grieved by it. Instead of talking to God, sometimes I was talking about you in front of you. That's not the way to do it. Forgive me if I've done it here. I, I don't know that I can think of a time I've done it here. I know I have done it at Strong Tower when I was there. Third, we should pray always in humility, knowing that God alone is the main audience, knowing that it is our will that must be shaped to his will, knowing that it is his image into which we must be transformed. <laughs> That's just the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. That's just the place where Jesus started, and it's a great place for us to start as well. That we would submit in humility to what God has for us. A great picture of that submission of humility is in the sacrament of baptism. No other place that I can think of <clears throat> displays such grand humility as the baptism of a child. Now, for those of you who are with us this morning and uh, infant baptism maybe is not part of your tradition, I am not gonna try to argue you into it. We don't have time for that. If you'd like to talk to me afterwards about why we do it, I'd love to talk with you. Um, but, but here's the thing. It's a picture of utter dependency, which is a great picture of the gospel, isn't it? Like the fact that the Lord is at work in a child's life before they can even cognitively know who he is is a powerful truth, isn't it? This morning we have this incredible opportunity to see um, a beautiful example of that in the baptism of Caden, Maine. Now Caden is a young man that we as a church have been praying for that the Lord would provide a child for Janet and Jeff, Maine. We wrestled with God. We, we came in on this story late, it felt like, and we saw a couple of false starts as they sought to adopt. And the Lord, wasn't, it wasn't the answer for them. And yet, Caden is. Caden is the incarnate answer to a beautiful and lovely prayer and longing to be parents. What a great picture of the gospel who who in our Father, who art in heaven, whose name ought be hallowed, chose to redeem us even when we are, according to Ephesians 2, were his enemies, wanted nothing to do with him. He redeemed us. Infant baptism is a beautiful picture of that. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Caden is not going to be saved by this little bit of warm water that we're going to place upon his head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It is not salvific. It won't change him. It will be on him to receive the means of grace as he grows older and recognizes who Christ is and the Lord enlightens him through the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. It will be for him to live out his faith in a way that is glorious to our God. But what this is, it is a beautiful picture of the blood of Christ. The water is is a picture of the blood of Christ being applied to a sinner, a sinner who is in desperate need of grace. Now, we may look at Caden and say, that sweet little boy, he, that, in a way, is a sinner. Well, he'll prove it out in time. 
<laughs> Trust me. And I'm, hey, he is one of the cutest kids I've seen. The kid just smiles all the time, and, and it's a real thrill for me to be able to baptize him. But it's, it's a picture of the blood of Christ being applied to cover his sin. To, 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 it is a sign and seal of the potentiality of justification in his life. It is a sign and a seal of the ongoing work of the Spirit to help him to mortify sin in his life, which is sanctification. It is also a sign and a seal of the promise that that which Christ has begun, he will finish. Glorification. This is a picture of the gospel. This is an opportunity for us as a church to be reminded of our own baptism. If you have been baptized, if you are one of the baptized ones, no matter where you were baptized, I pray that today you would be reminded of all that is in this picture of the gospel. That you would be reminded of your necessity to be raised to newness of life, of your own dependency upon the gospel, that you could not save yourself. That you would improve upon your baptism through this means of grace this morning. So if Jeff and Janet would bring Caden forward. As they're coming forward, I do want to read to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28.1 on baptism, just so, again, you have a, a feel for the language. It says, Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in the newness of life. Which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world? This is um, a wonderful opportunity. They are covenant family members. They have um, professed both their belief in Christ. They are members here at Christ Community Church. They have taken vows and they are seeking to be obedient in bringing uh, Caden Ford to be baptized as an awesome opportunity for us to remember who we are and whose we are. And so I have a, a few questions for them, but before I give you the questions, I wanna read a scripture. This is kind of a scripture mashup. Uh, it's Acts 2.39, Genesis 17.7, and Acts 16.31. Hear these words. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household. Now I have a number of questions for you. We've gone over these questions so there'll be no surprises. That'd be kind of bad for there to be surprises at this point. Um, but these questions are an opportunity for them, for you all to hear their public profession. Um, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promises on his behalf? And do you look in faith to Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own? Yes. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example that you will pray with and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Yes. 
Now, I want to take him for this part, if that's okay. I hope. I don't cry. I know I smell funny. Hey, buddy. All right, so I have a question for you, the congregation, and you'll respond by raising your right hand, and this is for members of Christ's community only. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Uh, My right hand is over here, and it's raised. Um, What an awesome opportunity that we have to love this family well, this family that has been through the valley of the shadow on this issue and yet have received this glorious blessing that I hold in my hands. Um, Caden is such a blessing. I hope he gets to hear the story someday and that he recognizes that it was Christ alone who has bought the story and made it true. That right, buddy? Let me pray and then we'll baptize Caden. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that this baptism would serve as a means of grace to Caden all of his days and that someday he would hear the story and that it would stir within him a desire to be known and loved by you and that all that is in, in, in signed and sealed in this baptism would be true for him and that those of us who are witnessing this today would be reminded of our own baptism so that we could improve upon it in a way that brings us closer to you. May we grow with every means of grace in Christ's name. Amen. Caden, buddy, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Caden. Thank you for the opportunity to serve him and you in this way. Thank you for his family. Thank you for all who have come to witness this today. God, I pray that you would use it for your glory in Christ's name.